Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Let's Talk Low Vision, brought to you by the Council of Citizens with Low Vision International. My name is Dr. Bill Takesta, and I am the Chief of Optometric Services at the Center for the Partially Sighted here in Los Angeles, California. The Center for the Partially Sighted is a nonprofit organization that has various professionals who help children and adults with low vision to learn to live independent lives. And for myself, tonight I'm going to share with you my own interesting story when I talk about how I ironically lost my vision after being a doctor, an eye doctor, for almost 18 years. So, this evening's podcast is being recorded by Ayers L.A., and I recommend that you keep a copy of it, and maybe you could share it with other people in your state or in any organizations that you're part of. This will be up at www.airsla.org. Again, that's www.airsla.org. Now, this evening, I'm going to tell you the story about my life situation. And it's a very interesting one in the sense that as long as I could remember, even as a young child, I always was very interested in becoming some sort of a doctor. I was born in 1960, and I am a third-generation Japanese-American. And when I grew up, I grew up in West Los Angeles in a community where virtually everybody there was Japanese-American. And virtually everybody there was a Japanese gardener. And it was really interesting because in the block that we lived, across the street were my grandparents. Next door to them were my aunts and uncles. Next to them was another aunt and uncle. And next door to my house was another aunt and uncle. And it was a community where we really all knew each other very, very well. And as we would go places, my parents or my aunts and uncles and grandparents, they would always see somebody they knew, and they would tell stories about these people. How did they know each other? And one of the things that I realized very early on was that most of these people grew up together, and they all lived at this place that they called camp. And I really didn't understand camp until I got a little bit older, and I learned that the camp was actually a internment camp. When Japan and the United States went to war, the Japanese Americans that lived on the Pacific coast were placed in internment camps. And these internment camps, they really weren't a very nice place to live. In other words they were actually placed out in some very rural areas. I can remember my mom telling me that she was so scared because after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, so many people started to scream and shout and say how things were going to get very difficult for the Japanese. And they were right. There were people who were very angry, and there were many people who would come and throw rocks at their house. They would flatten the tires on the car They would brush up against the windshields and crack the windshields. And within a couple of days, the troops came and they took my parents and their family to Santa Anita Racetrack here in California. And there, it was very grungy, and that's where they were segregated. Many of the men were then shipped to different camps, and the mothers and their children would be placed in other types of camps. Well, my parents were sent to Poston, Arizona. And according to my dad, my dad, who was 10 years old, he thought this was the greatest thing ever. He said, I loved camp. This was so great because we didn't have school in the same way that we used to before. We would just play. We would have all sorts of fun. We would stay up so late. But I didn't understand as a 10-year-old child what was actually happening. My mother, who was a bit younger, she thought it was the most frightening thing ever. 
she thought that the barracks that they lived in were just so, so dirty. They were so disgusting. And it was so cold at night and so hot in the day. But years later, they were let loose from Poston, Arizona, and they did resettle their lives in West L.A., California. And that is where my grandparents, my parents, my aunts and uncles, everybody went into the gardening business because that was something that they were able to do and they felt that they would be able to get a job because most of them did not go to college and because most of them really didn't have a strong education. They weren't really able to compete for other types of white-collar jobs. So they then started a nursery, and they also had the gardening route, and it came to the point, it came to the point where my parents realized that they needed more land so that they could grow more plants. So that was when my father relocated our family about 30 miles north of West L.A. to a town called Silmar, California. And when we went out there to look at these homes, it was a shocker. Believe me, it was such a shocker. I was four years old, and I don't remember seeing so many Caucasian people in my life. And as a matter of fact, there were no Asians. This town didn't seem like a real town. How could it be that there are so many Caucasians in one town? And as we drove around the neighborhoods, we realized, boy, these yards are massive. It's huge. There are many olive orchards. And we then began to see so many people riding horses. We then went to 7-Eleven to go get something to drink and instead of car parking spaces, there were stalls for people to tie up their horse, and the horses would drink from the trough. I just couldn't believe it. But that was where my dad and mom decided that we were going to settle, and we then developed a very large nursery. During those years, it was very interesting because it was the first time in my life that I wasn't next door to an aunt and uncle or my cousins or my grandparents or people that we knew so closely. In many ways, we felt sort of all alone out there. And as we had the nursery, it became where we all had chores. My brothers would have to plant plants and pull weeds, and I really was given the easier job of just going around and spraying the plants with these different liquid fertilizers. It was also really fun because we had an electric cart that I could drive around and spray all the plants. Well, I then went to school in Silmar, and it was the first day of school when the school nurse did a vision screening, and she said to me, Bill, I think that you need to have your eyes checked because you're not seeing very well. And I said to her, what do you mean I'm not seeing well? I see perfectly. I could see all of these colors. I could read really well. I could even see the fingerprints on my fingers. And she said, but, you know, Bill, you're supposed to be able to read those letters on the eye chart. Are there really letters on that eye chart? I was shocked. So I then went to the optometrist, and the optometrist was such a nice man. His name happened to be Dr. Louis Glasso. I mean, what a perfect name for an eye doctor. And as he was examining my eyes, he let me touch the machines and the instruments, and he let me click the lenses in front. And at the end, when he put on those glasses for me, I just could not believe how clear things were. I knew that these glasses were going to change my life because with these glasses, I would be able to hit the baseball a lot better because I'd be able to see it. So as we were going home from Dr. Glass's office, I saw all the kids playing baseball, and I said to my mom, let me out, let me out here, I'm going to play. And the kids all said, oh, gosh, Bill, are you going to play? They didn't want me to play because I was the worst kid out there. I really was. I couldn't hit the baseball. But finally it became my turn to bat. The ball came, and it was so clear. It was so big. And I swung with all my might, and I hit my first home run. I just couldn't believe it. I was running around the bases and cheering for myself. I was so happy. And that night at dinner, I was telling my parents this story. They were so happy for me. And I told my parents, you know what? I'm going to become an eye doctor one day. 
these glasses are the best thing ever. I'm going to become an eye doctor. I'm going to change the lives of these kids who can't play sports very well by giving them glasses. Well, the next day I went to school, and I also noticed something very different. I was able to read the words that were written on the chalkboard for the first time. It was the first time that I didn't have to stay in the classroom during recess to copy those words. And soon, my grades just really accelerated. And when we got a report card, I had the best report card I ever had. My dad and my mom and my relatives, they were so happy for me. We went out for dinner, and my dad said, Bill, I'm really proud of you. You're going to become an eye doctor one day if that's what you want to do. And I said, I do. I really want to become an eye doctor. So for the rest of my life there, going through elementary, middle, and high school, I studied as hard as I could, and I then was accepted to go to school at UCLA. There, when I was at UCLA, I decided that I was going to gain even more experience about being an eye doctor, and I volunteered at the UCLA's Jewel Stein Eye Institute. I thought I had a great volunteer position. It was where I would deliver charts to all the doctors, and I would pick up the charts when they were finished. They gave me a little uniform to wear. I thought I was a hot shot. But one of the ophthalmologists who was there was a young Japanese doctor, and he looked at me, and he said, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, pardon me? He said, what are you doing here? I said, oh, I'm the, one of the new volunteers, and I'm here to deliver charts and pick them up. He says, do you want to go to medical school? I said, I want to become an eye doctor. That's my goal. Do you think that just because you deliver charts and pick up charts, that's going to get you into medical school? I said, well, no, I don't think so. He says, well, if you really want to get into medical school, go up into my office right now. Go up into the second floor. This man scared the living daylights out of me. But I did go up to the second floor. And he came up, and he sat me down. He closed the door. And he says, if you want to become an eye doctor, you need to do something that's really special. Anybody. You don't even have to go to UCLA, and you could deliver and pick up charts. But it takes somebody special to get in to become an eye doctor. I want you to work for me. And I'm going to work you harder than you've ever worked before. But if you could do this, you'll get into school. So I gratefully agreed. I said, yes, I will do it. And during those months of working with him, it was difficult, but I learned so much. He let me work with his patients. He let me do the glaucoma testing. He let me check for cataracts. I did so many things, and he also asked me to do research. I was so certain that I wanted to become an eye doctor. But there was one thing I noticed. There were so many of these patients that he saw who had diseases such as macular degeneration, retinal detachment, uveitis, diabetic retinopathy, RP. And what I noticed was that so many of these people, after they received surgery, their vision really wasn't better. I was the one who had to measure their vision, and they still had very poor vision. They couldn't read. They couldn't look at a photograph and identify who was on the photograph. They couldn't even identify their money to buy something out of the vending machine. There were so many times that I would have to help these patients to get to the bus stop. Many of them, I would drive them home. And so one day, the doctor I was working for, he called me into his office. He said, William, I understand you've been driving my patients home. Are you getting paid to do that? I said, no, sir. He says, well, why are you doing that? I said, because it's nighttime and I feel so bad that these people, they can't drive. They're waiting for a bus. I don't know how far they live from the bus stop, so I want to help them out. He says, I don't know that you're suited to become an ophthalmologist. I said, what do you mean? Haven't I been doing a good job? He said, yes, but you're too sensitive. You know, as an ophthalmologist, we cannot cure everybody's eyesight. So I want you to go see Samuel Janinski, 
he is the founder of the Center for the Partially Sighted. Dr. Janinsky is a child, was a child, who was born with perfectly healthy eyes, but they put the wrong eye drops in his eyes. It burnt up both of his eyes and left him totally blind in one eye, and in the other eye, his vision was 20 over 2,000. What that means is that he was not able to see things clearly from virtually any distance at all. What a person with 20-20 vision could see from 2,000 feet away, Sam would have to walk all the way to 20 feet in order to see it. Well, I read everything about Sam, and I went to visit him, and I could not believe what was happening at this place called the Center for the Partially Sighted. These people who were legally blind were being evaluated by these low-vision optometrists, and these optometrists were giving them glasses that they could read again. They were prescribing glasses that these folks were able to look at photographs. They were even giving telescopic glasses that people would be able to obtain a driver's license. You know, I couldn't believe it. Because in my mind, I thought that the ophthalmologist who does a surgery would be the person who could have the most effect in helping people with low vision. But in this case, it's the optometrist. So I met with Dr. Janinsky. I spoke with some of the other patients who were there, and I decided I'm going to become a low vision optometrist. So I went to school, and when I finished school, Dr. Janinsky actually called me and offered me a job at the Center for the Partially Sighted. It was only a a one-day-a-week job, but I was so thankful to have that. The rest of the time, I started my own practice where I specialized in working with children who had visual dyslexia, where they would see things backwards. They couldn't read. They couldn't maintain their place when they're reading because their eyes didn't move well. So I was very, very happy to have worked, working with these specialized populations. And then my girlfriend of over nine years, we then finally got married. And then we had two children. We even bought a little house in Van Nuys. My life was just everything that I wanted. We were becoming busier and busier. I was beginning to meet all of these movie stars and examining the vision of their children. I was meeting other people from throughout the world who would come to the Center for the Partially Sighted. They were literally coming to see me to see if I could improve their vision. And let me tell you, there's no better feeling in the world as when a person comes from a long distance and they tell you that they have seen all the specialists in their country, and nobody was able to help them. And you could design glasses that would enable them to read again, to write, to drive, to go back to work, to play sports. It was just an incredible feeling. And it got to the point that I just loved my work so much that I asked, would it be okay if we start a pediatric low vision program at the Center for the Partially Sighted? And Sam Janinsky said, yes, we definitely need that. And before long, I was working six and a half days a week. I love my work. It was the greatest thing ever. I didn't think, though, that maybe my wife wasn't happy with me working so many days. But I was able to do that for 18 years. We had two children. Everything was just so wonderful. I couldn't ask for anything more in our lives. But I was examining a little girl one day, and when I was looking in one of her eyes, I said, she has a rare disease in her eye. I've never seen anything like this. There was a black blob. And then when I moved my eye to inspect another part of her eye, that blob moved. And I said, that can't be. How can that be that that blob is moving in the same direction that my eye is? And I then realized that blob is not in her eye. This blind spot is in my eye. And so I did different testing on myself, and I realized I did have a blind spot in one eye. 
I then saw many ophthalmologists privately. I did not want anybody to know who I was. I used false names. I paid in cash. Because the worst thing that could have ever happened to me in my life would be that I have a vision problem and I have to give up my profession. You see, I didn't want to give up my profession because this is what I worked for all of my life, and this is something that I love doing, and this is something that I was really, really comfortable doing. But after seeing so many ophthalmologists, and they all told me the same thing, they told me that I had a disease that was called cone rod degeneration. I said, how could this be? Cone rod degeneration is generally inherited. It is a genetic mutation that causes this. I went to all of my relatives to see, does anybody have a vision problem? Nobody had vision problems. I searched all the way back in Japan. Nobody had these vision problems. And I said, how could this be? And as I did more and more research, one of the things that comes to mind right now is that all of those insecticides, all those chemicals that I was spraying, and all of those weed killers that I used, they are things that are potential of causing genetic changes. And as we study this more, there is one medication or one weed killer that is still on the market that I use constantly, and it was called Roundup. If you listen to the radio today, you'll hear commercials about Roundup, and they say how Roundup can cause cancer. And when I look at other things that happen, my dad and two of his brothers, who also had nurseries, they all developed Parkinson's disease. Another one developed Lou Gehrig's disease. There were so many things that were negative that were happening to us as we got older. And I believe it's related to the chemicals. So I was forced to retire from my practice. It was the worst day ever. I did not want to do this, but I had to because I realized I wouldn't be safe in examining the eyes of all these children and adults. I became so depressed. I said, what am I going to do? How are my kids going to survive? How is my family going to have food to eat? How are we going to be able to make the house payment? How are people going to think of me? You know, everybody would say, Dr. Bill, Dr. Bill, gosh, he's a great doctor, and Dr. Bill's a doctor of this superstar, and that actress, and this singer. People knew me in a positive way, but if I'm not Dr. Bill, I'm nothing. I can't golf. I don't see well enough to play golf. I can't see the ball to play tennis. I can't drive a car anymore. I can't even work on my computer because of my vision. All the things that I used to do, I couldn't do. So I would stay at home. And the first week, I didn't know what to do with my time. I just sat outside and I kept thinking, God is so unfair. God is really not fair. Because if there was a fair God, God would not let this happen to somebody who helps other people with vision problems. There's not hardly any other doctors who do what I do. So why would he take this away from me? My wife, she would try to do so many things to cheer me up. Why don't we go out for lunch? No, I don't want to go for lunch. We've got to save our money. We don't, we don't have any money. We're not going to be making money. We can't go out. Okay, I'll make you. What would you like for me to make? No, you don't have to make me lunch. No, I'll make you. What would you like? Anything is fine. Okay. Come and eat, Bill. I go to eat. Oh, is this all we have is turkey salad? I didn't want turkey salad. She goes, well, I'll make you something different. No, that's okay. I'll eat this. This is all we got. No, I'll make you something. No, I'll eat this. You've met those kinds of people. I was the biggest jerk around. I would say things that would make everybody around me feel bad. I would want them to feel bad for me. And there were times that people wouldn't say anything. 
they wouldn't bring up anything about my vision, and I would get angry. I'd say, you know what? This is something that should have happened to you. shouldn't have happened to me. You're a housewife. This should have happened to you. I'm an eye doctor. shouldn't happen to me. I became angry and angrier, and I tried to hide it from my children. But my children, they saw right through it. I would never go any place. My wife would take them place on the weekends. I wouldn't want to go. I would always have an excuse. I got a headache. It's too bright. It's too hot. It's too cold. And one day my son, he says to me, Dad, I know this is really hard on you, but this isn't only affecting you. It's affecting all of us. This is affecting all of us. And we're not happy. Mom's crying all the time when you're not home. Jamie's crying. I cry. And this was my son who was about 10 years old. I couldn't believe it. So from that point, I decided I have to do something. I have to make a change. There is nothing that anybody around is going to do that's going to make me happier. In other words, if somebody brought to me a million dollars, I wouldn't be happier. I still would be so angry that I couldn't see, that I couldn't drive. I can't play sports. I'm so angry that I won't be able to see what my daughter looks like when she's walking down the aisle getting married. I wouldn't be able to see the face of my grandson. I wouldn't be able to see pictures and things on the computer. So I decided, though, that I need to make a change And I need to get out of the house. If you stay in the house and you think about everything that is bad, everything that is unfair, all that does is it makes you angrier and angrier and angrier. So I thought of something. I thought of John Wooden. Many of you know John Wooden. He was one of the greatest college basketball coaches of all time. And he created something that was called the Pyramid of Success. And I looked at it, and I said, I need a Pyramid of Success, but something that's going to work specifically for me. And at that particular point, I then started to create ideas. And on the bottom of the pyramid, this would be the most important things that I would need to do. And on that bottom... I said that I am going to need to be able to communicate openly with people. If I continue to have this passive-aggressive behavior, no one's going to want to be around me. I noticed that people didn't want to be around me because I was just an angry, angry person. Next to communication, I said, I need to have faith. I need to believe in something. I need to have some type of hope. Because if all I think about is that life is over for me, I'm just going to become angrier and angrier. I needed faith. I needed hope. And I told my oldest brother, you know, I am looking for this type of faith and hope. And he says, come to church with me. Come to my church. This is a different type of church. They have services on Saturday evening. You don't have to be dressed up if you don't want to, and I'll take you to dinner after. And I said, okay, that'll be great. And when we went there, I was able to understand what the preacher was saying. He spoke in a way that I could understand the words that he used. And I learned from that sermon was that God, God was going to be there for all of us at one particular point in time. And there's nothing to fear because he's going to look over us. Whether we become blind or we get cancer or we have a disease that's going to be terminal, there still is nothing to be afraid of because he will be there for us in the end. And that was something that was very meaningful to me because I had never heard that. I had never understood that. So that type of faith gave me hope to look forward to tomorrow. 
And the next level on the bottom of my pyramid was education. I started to think of why is it that this loss of vision is making me so angry? Is it because I'm not Dr. Bill? I think part of it was that. I had this tremendous ego being a doctor. I was proud that I was not a Japanese gardener, and I was proud that I'm an eye doctor. But as I started to think about things, I realized that there's other people who are equally, if not more important, than a doctor. If you have a home and the toilet clogs up, the most important person is that plumber. Believe me, you're going to value that plumber who comes to unclog your toilet. Or if your car breaks down and it's nighttime and you're in the middle of the desert, if a tow truck comes and that mechanic can fix your car, you are so grateful. I soon learned that there are so many other professions that are equally, if not more important, than my own profession. I was so grateful that there's wonderful chefs out there who can make all of these incredible foods. And so I realized I do not know enough. I do not know enough to be able to live independently without my vision. I was very angry because I couldn't really find the proper color clothing to dress myself. I didn't know if it was black or navy blue. I didn't want to go out wearing different colored socks. I didn't know if my shirt and a tie match. I don't want to go out in public and look like a clown. So I would have to ask people, hey, can you tell me what color this is? But I hated to ask them. Even though they were so willing to help me, I hated asking. But I didn't know how to match my clothes. I didn't know how to cook breakfast anymore. I couldn't tell if it was cooked or if it was raw. I didn't know how to do my banking anymore. I couldn't see the numbers. So I needed to educate myself. And I started to read different books on audio tape. And I started to learn ways to sort my clothes. I learned that there was a device called a color identifier. And with this color identifier, I could put it on any clothing. I knew what color I had. And the fact that I could just dress myself without asking my wife, oh, I was so happy. I was so incredibly happy. Later, I learned other things that by talking to other people who have low vision, every problem that I had, somebody at that group could solve it. I went to the open house for my daughter. She went to Nobel Middle School. And one of my patients from many years ago, I understood, was now a teacher there. And he was legally blind, and he was a teacher for the legally blind. I told my daughter, I'm just going to go in here and say hi to Mr. Christian. So I opened the door. The first thing I hear is Mr. Christian. Dr. Bill, what are you doing here? I can't believe it. What are you doing here? I said, I just wanted to come and say hi to you. I, I want to come and see your class. And he grabs my arm, and we're walking hand in hand. I said, what is this? I can't stand this. He's holding me. He goes, hey, don't worry. I got you. I'm going to show you my classroom. You're not going to bump into anything. Don't worry. At that point, I knew that he had heard that I lost my vision. But he showed me everything in the class. He showed me how they were cleaning aquariums, even without vision, he showed me how they were mixing music and learning to play instruments, even though that these kids didn't have vision. And after he showed me all the things that they were doing in there, from electronics to woodworking to gardening, he says, hey, what are you doing Saturday? I said, I don't think I'm doing anything. He says, okay, good. I'm coming over to your house, 8 o'clock Saturday morning, so be ready. I go, no, 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 you're not coming to my house. He goes, you said you don't have anything to do. I'm coming over. I go, no, Keith, really, I appreciate you trying to help, but I don't need any help. I, everything is going good. He says, no, I'm going to teach you some things, and I'm going to be over no matter what. 
and he goes to my wife, you're not going anyplace Saturday. She said, no. He goes, okay, I'm going to be over, so don't let him run the house. Long story short, that day of him coming over my house, he taught me how to use a program called JAWS. I didn't think that I'd be able to use a computer. And in one morning, he taught me how to use JAWS. He taught me how to identify the alphabet in Braille. I mean, I just couldn't believe that I was reading the alphabet in Braille. He taught me how to cook eggs over easy with bacon. And it was perfect. So I learned how to use these timers. I learned how to mark the microwave so that I could use it by myself. He taught me how to mark the stove and the washer and the dryer so I could turn the temperatures to where I wanted it. He even taught me how to shave my sideburns so that they were equal. He said, hey, put on these Ray-Ban sunglasses, and you could feel two fingers down. That's about how high they should be now shaved. And I was able to keep level sideburns. That day changed my life. That day was truly one of the best days ever because I realized that I could learn to do these things. I learned how to do all these things in one day, and I felt so good. And he told me, he says, next week, you're going to come to my house, and we're going to put new drywall on my garage, and we're going to build a waterfall in the backyard. I go, what? We won't be able to. He goes, no, we'll be able to do it. Don't worry. And we did it. It was so amazing. He taught me how to do electrical without any vision. All that I needed to know was, what tools do I need to do that? So things continued to go on where I met more and more people. And as I escaped my home and met people and communicated to them about my vision problems, and I communicated to them about the fact that I still have two young kids and that I need work, everything began to open up. It was really such a blessing. It was as though God simply said, you're doing the right thing, and this is going to be here for you. I was offered a job. The Junior Blind of America offered me a job to be a consultant. They wanted me to lecture to a lot of their students. I said, well, yeah, I guess I could lecture. My vision hasn't affected my mouth at all. I could speak. And then... I was offered a job by the Braille Institute. Are you sure you guys want to hire me? This is going to be a full year-long job? I said, yes, we need this kind of organization. We don't need you to see anything for us. We got lots of employees here who could see, but we don't have anybody who knows how to do it. We need to know how to show the students of Braille Institute the visual aids, that would be helpful. And I said, yes. And after I was beginning to work at these two locations, Center for the Partially Sighted says, Dr. Bill, we heard that you're working. Why haven't you come back to us first? We have been keeping a job for you all of this time. We need you. And all this time, I thought that they didn't want me back, that they wouldn't want a blind doctor. So before long, I was working six days a week. And as I was going from one place to another, lecturing and speaking, and I was traveling, I learned to travel all by myself. I couldn't believe that I was able to do that. But I learned that I could go to the airport, and there will be an attendant that would help me to get through and have all the security passed. And then I could get on board. And the flight attendants will help me to find my seat. And when the plane lands, another escort will take me to transportation to get a cab. And when I get to the hotel, the bellhop would take me to my room. And they would show me around, and I could do everything that I wanted to do. The confidence that I gained from being able to travel by myself was just absolutely incredible. I was so proud that I was able to do this myself. And I know that this is something that with every one of you, once you get to the point 
that you are able to do those things that you want to do, you're going to realize that life is good. I love to go to restaurants. People may say, there's a new restaurant in town. I'll say to my friend, let's go try it. Let's take our wives. Let's take Uber. What the heck? We won't have to worry about parking. It is wonderful. We like to go on vacation. I'm going to be going to Wyoming for the first time to see my friend Tom Lalos. We'll see what that's all about, but I'm looking forward to it. I could do household repairs now. I'm not kidding. I have rewired so much of my home. I have redone the copper piping in so many parts of our home. I have also drywalled my garage. I put new lights up in there. I've done all of these things as a man who was totally blind or I had no vision. And if it wasn't for the help of the other people that I met who are legally blind or totally blind and people such as Mr. Christian, I would still be at home sitting in my backyard. I was at such a down place in my life that I changed all of our telephone numbers so that nobody could call us. I didn't want anybody to call and say, hey, Dr. Bill, really sorry to hear that you lost your vision. Are you okay? Is there anything that I could do for you? I didn't want anybody to call, and I didn't want to hear that. But when my friends didn't call, and nobody would call and say, hey, Bill, hey, you got time to go and get In-N-Out burgers today? I said to June, my wife, have you noticed none of my stinking friends never call? Now that I don't get them free contact lenses and free fancy glasses, they don't even have time to call. They can't even call to invite me to go to In-N-Out for a burger and fries. She said, Bill, you changed all the phone numbers. Nobody knows our phone numbers. How is anybody going to call us? I said, oh, that's right. (laughs) It was even to the point, it was even to the point that I was so unhappy that I thought the solution to all of this would be for me to take my life I was going to walk by a hill that the bus comes around a blind curve. That bus would never see me, and I would step in front of the bus as it came around the curve, and it would kill me. My wife and my kids would get my life insurance. I had it all planned, and I asked my oldest brother, Hey, if anything ever happens to me, would you watch out for my family? And I gave him the envelope with all of our information that's important. And he says, are you planning to kill yourself? That is the most selfish thing you could ever think of doing is to kill yourself. How do you think everybody else will feel if you're not around? I said, they're going to be happy. They're going to have this money. They don't have to worry about me. He said, you're sick. You're selfish, and that is the greatest sin that you could ever commit if you kill yourself. I thought about that that night, and it changed my thinking. He is right. I have an uncle, one of my dad's brothers. He had committed himself, committed suicide. He was a gardener, a Japanese gardener, and he hung himself. When the kids came home from school, they went into the garage and they saw him hanging. It really affected them so seriously. And I remembered that. So the solution for living with low vision is to be able to commit and communicate. Communicate with others. There's nothing wrong with telling any other person you have a vision problem. I just went to a basketball game. It was a UCLA basketball game. I went with a friend. He had never been to a UCLA game. I said, hey, do you want to go to the UCLA basketball game? I have four great tickets. And maybe do your two kids want to go? He goes, yes. I've never been to a game. My kids never been to a game. He goes, let's go. So we went. 
And then as we're walking from the parking lot into the Poly Pavilion, he says, Hey, Bill, why are you going to the game? I mean, you're not going to be able to see anything. I said, I know, but I could listen to the game on the radio, and I hear the crowd roaring. I mean, it is so exciting, even though I can't see it. And when he was watching that game, he at the end said, I was visualizing how you would see the game. I closed my eyes. I could hear the crowd. I hear the band. And it was awesome. So we should learn to communicate with others so that they understand what we see, so that they could understand what's difficult for us to do and what's not, so that they could understand when we want help and maybe when we don't want. But if we don't say anything, we're probably going to create a problem. I strongly believe whether that you are a Christian or you're Buddhist or you're Jewish or you're Muslim, whatever it is your faith is, reach out to your faith. Because your faith is going to give you hope. It's going to give you that strength to move forward. Number three, I remind you to get educated. Contact any of these low vision agencies. Contact other people with low vision. And ask these people, hey, how do you do this? How do you do that? How do you know which bottle is shampoo and which bottle is conditioner? We have written a book here with the Council of Citizens with Low Vision. And the book is called Insights into Low Vision. To write this book, we have gotten some of the country's specialists, the very, very best, to write chapters on how to do all of these different things. And if you are interested in this book... There's two ways that you can get it. You can purchase the book, Insights into Low Vision, for $19.95 by going to Amazon.com. Now, there is a large print version, and there's also an audio version. So if you rather listen to it, you can do that. We do not have a Braille version yet. But you could also get a free copy of the book if you join the CCLVI. And the membership of CCLVI, I understand that it varies between $15 and $20, depending on which state that you live in. But for $15 in the state of California, you can get this book. And in this book, you're going to become educated, and you're going to learn how to deal with the stressful situations. You're going to learn how you could get financial aid to get the computers that could magnify and talk for you. You're going to learn how can you get a guide dog. You might want a guide dog like Cupcake, and Cupcake's going to make life so much easier for you. You might want to know how to travel from one location to another. All of this information is there in the book. So at this time... I'm going to open it up to questions, and if you have any questions, please go ahead and unmute your phone by pressing star six, and if any of you have the answer for that question, I welcome you to answer these questions as well. So unmute your phone to you pick a question by pressing star six. Thank you very much. Dr. Bill, Mary Lou. Yes, Mary Lou, go right ahead. Thank you. I've had low vision since I was a child, and my worst time is when I was in school, uh, the best uh, when I was in fourth grade. And my problem was that the teachers were not of any help to me. And it was almost like a constant bullying. The children were really on me about why I was doing things, why I was using large print books and stuff, and I would come home crying. Oh, gosh. It was like constantly, and there was a point where I had thought of really taking my life because I couldn't deal with stuff and had to get over it. And I just, you know, one they decided to change the school, and I was relocated to another school. Things got better. But, you know, it was really bad. And that one time in eighth grade, uh, 
a girl tried to put my move my hand over into the sewing machine needle, and luckily I didn't get it, but my friend did, and they I got a note on the my locker saying that was meant for you, and it was like I told my father I said I got to get out of here, and you know. I don't know what that school is doing, but this is getting dangerous. And luckily, I went to the school for the blind for two years. But, you know, uh, it's almost like with sometimes with low vision, the kids can be bullying to people with low vision. You're absolutely right, Mary Lou. And unfortunately, there are so many people in this world who are ignorant. They're truly ignorant because... They have never interacted with a person who is blind or a person who has low vision. And there are so many situations that all of us have probably encountered. You know Yeah, and what's worse is the low the uh resource teacher and the teachers in general and principal, they just said, you know, this will make you stronger. And the thing is you know, the parents would say, look, this is not acceptable. You have to do something. You have to put your foot down and you have to discipline these kids, you know, because this is not acceptable behavior for what they're doing to the child. And they would not really do anything or they said, you know, the kid really likes you when they're doing this to you. And I said, you got to be crazy. And, you know, they threatened me with the detention. I said, no, you need to give that person a detention. Yes, you're absolutely right, Mary Lou. And today, this is what we do with the patients that we have who are children with low vision. Number one, we write a very, very thorough report that describes what the child is and is not able to see. And we set up a meeting with the parents and the teacher. Because in many cases, the teachers do not understand what the child is or is not able to see. Number two, if the child is low vision, we then try to get them a teacher for the visually impaired who's also there to assist. And we then ask the teacher for the visually impaired to assist the student with low vision to give a presentation to the entire class and to say things such as, yeah, my name is Dr. Bill, and I am low vision. You might wonder why I use this cane, but it does help me to walk so I don't bump into things. And I do read by using my fingers. And I had to have a computer that could talk. But I'm willing to show you guys any of this cool equipment if you'd like. And if any of you would like to, you guys could even join me when we go on these particular types of field trips at the Junior Blind or the Blind Children's Center or whatever. And this was something that's a real quick story I want to tell you. I had a patient, and his name is Jake. And I've known Jake for many years. He's had retinoblastoma, a tumor in the eye. But at the age of 12, his doctor told him that they had to remove his eyes because the cancer is spreading throughout his body. If they don't remove his eyes, he's going to die. And this 12-year-old boy called me up and said, Dr. Bill, I need help. I need help to know how I can continue to go to school even if I can't see. And I said, what do you mean you can't see? He goes, they're going to remove my eyes next week. So we had a meeting. And I had to talk to him. I said, you will be able to do this. You'll be able to learn to do this. The reason I know this is because I learned to do this. Well, he did learn. And we were able to get him all the equipment he needed. And he was able to continue on at his private school. And it has been his dream to go to USC, and he has always loved football. And I want to tell you, this young man, his name is Jake Olson. He is the center on the USC football team, and he snaps the long snaps to the punter and the kicker when they kick the field goals. This kid has no eyes, and he's able to play on one of the top football teams in the country. And he has no vision. Now, this is a story of success as to when we give the person that ability to communicate, we educate, and we give them hope. These are things that he could do. So if you do run into children who do need that type of help, contact us here at the CCLVI, and we will get people to help them at that school. 
because it should not be that way. Next question, please. Yes, my name's Carl from Atlanta near Emory University. I was uh, fully visioned for many, many years, and then at the age, uh, gosh, 1997, 98, I lost all my vision. I was a paramedic firefighter in the fire department, excellent career, blah, 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 and then left totally blind. For a year, I could not and would not slow down, and I went to the Center for the Visually Impaired in Atlanta and learned to use a cane, but learned very poorly. Walked too many times into telephone poles, into um, buildings, into anything and everything that could cross me. So they recommended and sent me, endorsed me to go to the center, uh, to the Southeastern Guide Dog School where I trained with Cupcake. Thank God she's been the best blessing in my life. But, um, you know, today... Here I am turning almost 60 years old. Uh, my brother's had brain cancer. I deal with that crisis. I go to a support group. Uh, my guide dog, you know, helps me as best he can. She can, I'm sorry. And um, I just deal with life on a day-to-day basis. And unfortunately, I find out that because during the years that I was employed, and did save some money, I'm not eligible for so many different resources that would otherwise be eligible to me because of my disability, my legal blindness. I have no vision in one eye, no retina, and less than 2,400 vision, at best 2,500 vision in one eye and the other eye on a good day. Um and given all that information, what do you recommend? Yeah, there's different types of programs that we might uh, recommend. Have you ever been in the military? No. And then have you contacted the firefighters union to see if they have programs and benefits for those who are disabled? All the fire department offered me and gave me through a lawyer was a very good pension. I get a pension from the fire department, um, which is tax, no tax, and I get Social Security disability. But they, in other words, it's offered by the fire department, but they don't automatically come out and say, here, let's give you this, unless you have a lawyer. But whatever, that was many years ago. Financially, I'm okay, but I just... I, I wonder and worry if there's so many different resources that may be still available to me that I'm unaware of. And the Georgia, I worked for, I mean, the um, Department of Labor Vocational Rehab sent me through computer training, sent me to the Center for the Visually Impaired. I've gotten many benefits, but still, here I am about to turn 60 years old, and it's just, it, it's very... It's more difficult than I than than I would like. And and can you name the top three things that you you need right now? Are these classes or are they equipment? Uh, I don't know because the the they have furnished me with a computer. They have taught me computer technology. I have uh, Zoom text, uh, Magic software, and Jaws on my computer, and they once they saw that the cane training was not near as effective as it should have been after six months of that, they sent me to a uh, guide dog school, and my guide dog is worth a million dollars. If someone offered me a million dollars today, I'd say go away because she's everything to me. She keeps me from walking off prematurely curbs, walking into overhanging branches, yeah, you know, and she's a constant companion. Well, Carl, I'm going to give you a call because we're almost out of time, but I'm going to talk to you privately because one of the things that we would need to identify is what is it that you need? In other words, do you need training? Do you need psychosocial support? Do you need other types of equipment? Once we find out what it is, there's different ways that we could approach. For example, we could approach the Department of Rehabilitation again. 
There's other organizations such as Change a Life Foundation that can help in terms of, one, obtaining equipment and services. So I do have your number that you gave me, and I will give you a call in the next couple of days so that we could try to identify what things that you think you need, all right? Okay. And then we'll try to find some assistance. Thank you so much. Please go to the next caller. Thank you. Hey, this is this is Barry. Hi, Barry. Hey, I'm uh, Louise's husband. Uh, I have a quick question. I was just wondering uh, what device you use to identify electrical wires. Yeah, the I, I the device that I use to identify electrical wires. I don't know the name of it, but it's a uh, it's a amp reader that is battery powered, and when I connect onto it, if it's going to be a black power then it's going to beep a particular way. If it's the white neutral, it beeps a different way. And if it's a ground, it beeps differently. So I don't know what is that particular uh, name of it that I had uh, purchased at that, but I did purchase it at Fry's Electronic Warehouse. I've heard of them. Okay, yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Is there another question? Okay, we've got time for one more question. Does anybody else have a question? Louise is here. Um, um, I had some sight up until September, but I was losing some sight, and then my doctor did an operation, and I lost whatever I had, so I just have, like, life perception now. Um, so he put the oils in, and I'm all with that right now, but I'm trying to get used to seeing. Well, I don't see hardly anything. I only have sight in one eye, so it's... Just trying to learn mobility and trying to get adjusted and uh, some ups and downs. My husband, Barry, is totally blind. And we're trying to get some help. Um, I don't know if I could ever leave you my number. Maybe you can give me some resources I could use, too. Um, but I don't want to give up. I love to do. The, I love to be outdoors. I used to do cross-country skiing and all kinds of stuff. And I want to be able to do that. We are retired now, so it's like I want to start having fun and try to enjoy myself and I don't know if I'll ever get any sight back. One doctor says yes. I saw a doctor, I don't know if you might know him, Dr. Hiroshi. He's supposed to be um, well-known in, in Boston and he's a good retina specialist. And I, I go to a retina specialist in New York. Um, and it just sometimes you just wonder, maybe I shouldn't have had the operation, but then he he says my retina was going anyway. So it's like um, at one point I'm still blaming myself. I said maybe I shouldn't have had it, but I want to get over that part of, like, it wasn't my fault, and and some days I'm good, and at the beginning of it, I was I felt a little bit like you did when you said you don't want to live anymore. Um, yeah, I felt like that for a little bit, but got over that, well, pretty quickly, but um, I just want to keep on going, and uh, I just, I yeah. don't know if I ever want a dog, but I, I do use a cane, and and like some resources in the New York area that if you think that might be helpful for me. Yes. Do you live in Manhattan area? We're in Westchester County. We're about a half hour from Manhattan. Okay. So that's reasonable to get to? Yes. Okay. Yes, because there is the uh, Lighthouse Guild. Well, that's who they hooked me up to. I'm supposed to have a counselor come Friday. He was supposed to come last week and never showed up. So I wasn't too pleased about that. Um, So I hope... I mean, I've been, I've worked many years. A lot of my jobs I've gotten on my own. The commission has tried to take credit for stuff they never got me. You know, so it's like I don't feel like I want to go through all that again, but it's like uh, I'm going to try again, but it's just, you know, it's just like, like you said, sometimes you feel like it's not fair. Why does, like I always had limited sight, now I hardly have any, and it's like why does this have to happen? I want to figure out what my purpose is and, you know, I go through that sometimes, too, so that's yes. where I'm at right now. Well, Louise, I want you to stay on the line when we finish because I'll get your telephone number privately just for you and okay. me. But the last okay. comment I want to make for all of you is the fact that for me, after I became totally blind, things became easier. Things actually became easier because I stopped trying to use my vision. And as I learned these other types of techniques, I was able to do things much more quickly and much more efficiently when I didn't have any vision to use. And today, 
I'm the happiest that I've ever been in my life. I can't understand that because it shouldn't be that way in many ways. But I truly am. So I thank all of you for the time that you have spent to be here on this call this evening. And if any of you want to get in touch with me, you could get in touch with me through email at Dr. Bill Foundation. That's D-R-B-I-L-L Foundation at gmail.com. That's Dr. Bill Foundation at gmail.com. And we will have this podcast available at the Airs LA webpage at www.airsaisla.org. And it will also be posted on cclvi.org. So, Mr. Burden, I want to thank you for recording this program this evening. And we hope to see all of you next month who bring you more about living with low vision. 